With Elevate 150 from Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, you can grow financially stronger and so can Redeemer Radio. Visit NotreDameFCU.com slash Elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Bishop starts off this episode talking about a lesser-known saint whose feast day we celebrate today, St. Angela Marici. Hear about not only who she was, but also her connection to a parish in the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. Then it's on to a feast day we recently celebrated, the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul the Apostle. While there are actually four different accounts of his conversion in the New Testament, Bishop takes a deep dive into the first, from Acts of the Apostles, Chapter 9. Hear how St. Paul, then Saul, was on his way to gather Christian disciples for punishment when he saw a blinding heavenly light and heard Jesus say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then the ultimate conversion story unfolds. Bishop explains the significance of Jesus saying Saul's name twice, the symbolism of his blindness lasting three days, St. Paul's immediate response to his missionary call, and much more. The show wraps up with Bishop talking about ways we can spread the good news of Jesus Christ, too. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop. Got a lot to talk about today. St. Paul is, is going to be a big one. He's one of my favorites. Yeah, I just confirmed a, a student at uh, Bishop Lohr's last week, took the name Paul. Uh-huh great saint, uh, apostle to the Gentiles. So yeah, we just celebrated his conversion on Monday. Have you ever seen the movie Paul, Apostle of Christ? I did see, is that the one? Oh, I did see one. I think I did. Is that the one where Luke is pretty prominent? Yeah, it's it's one of my favorites. I, I think they did such a good job with the, the storytelling there. And I don't want to ruin the ending, but it's got a, a really good ending to it. What good ending? He got beheaded. <laughs> but that's not the end of the story. Like, then he goes to heaven. Right. That's right. He went to heaven. I'm yeah. teasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, it, it's it's hard to not know the ending to biblical stories whenever they're in the movies. It's right. like Titanic. You knew how it was going to end, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't remember the end of the movie. I'll have to. I don't want to spoil have a spoiler though for the viewer or okay. listeners. So you'll have to tell me later. All right. Air. All right. Sounds good. Do you have an opening prayer for us today? Yes. Today's the feast of St. Angela Merici. So I thought I would use the prayer that we use at mass today for her. Okay. In the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. amen. May the Virgin St. Angela never fail to commend us to your compassion. O Lord, we pray that following the lessons of her charity and prudence, we may hold fast to your teaching and express it in what we do. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. St. Angela Marici. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You know, whenever I... Um, when I think about St. Angela, you know, she lived in the 16th century, you know, and we had so many of those great saints, but she'd be one who would probably be a little bit lesser known. In the new church, St. Pius X in Granger, the new church, they have 
a mosaic of her in the uh, triumphal arch with other saints. And hmm. I, I thought, wow, that's unusual. Why did they choose St. Angela Merici? And Monsignor Schooler, the pastor, explained that they have a group, a program at St. Pius Parish called the Children of St. Angela Merici. <laughs> and it's a program for the religious education of children and adults with disabilities. Oh, okay. So it's a very hands-on approach to learning. And it's really great that they have this program custom tailored to the needs and abilities of every child. They have a one-on-one catechists to student and hmm. to facilitate their learning preparation for the sacraments and everything. So so that's why they included uh, St. Angela in the art in the new church. So anyhow, I just wanted to mention that. But but we honor her as a, as a saint. She was the foundress of the Ursuline Order, the Company of St. Ursula okay. in Italy, in Brescia. These women dedicated their lives to the education of girls. Now, that may not seem well, what's so unusual about that. Well, she was. this was actually the first teaching order of women religious hmm. were these, this company of St. Ursula. I mean, we're so used to religious sisters as teachers. Well, this was the first. And they weren't religious in the sense of uh, with a religious habit and everything. At the beginning, they were basically young women who St. Angela brought together and they took the name of St. Ursula because she was the uh, patroness of medieval universities. And St. Angela's goal was to have this good Christian education for, for women, for, young, for girls who would be future wives and mothers, that they would receive a strong uh, Christian education. So, so this group of women, they didn't wear a habit or, or take formal vows but they kind of lived in their own homes. They lived in the world, uh, taught these girls, and the Ursulines opened up orphanages and schools. Uh, eventually, after, after St. Angela died, there were a lot of these communities of women serving throughout that region of Italy, the Brescia region. By the way, she was a third order Franciscan also. <laughs> very, very holy woman. And anyhow, as time went on, the Ursulines became more monastic with a habit and everything. But they were present when the church was established in the United States. They had a famous school and convent in New Orleans, as a matter of fact, that was attacked and burned down. But in any <laughs> case, um, she is the one whom we remember today. And to all those out there listening who may have the name Angela, happy mm. feast day. Or if you know someone named Angela, you can wish them a happy feast day today. Yeah, that's great. I have not heard her story before, so it's great to learn. So many great saints that I feel like some are, are much more known than others. Uh, so it's good to learn about some of the lesser known saints. But then also we were going to talk about the conversion of St. Paul, which was the feast day last Monday. And we talked about this in 2018, but I feel like we didn't really go into depth about his story and scripture recounts it. Uh, I think you said multiple times that I know that there's at least two times. How, is there a third? Well, well, there's actually four times. I four. mean, it's really interesting <laughs> that in the New Testament, we have the story of, of St. Paul's conversion 
three times in the Acts of the Apostles, in chapters 9, 22, and 26. And of course, we know St. Luke was the author of the Acts of the Apostles. But we also have St. Paul himself writes about his conversion in his uh, letter to the Galatians in the first chapter. Hmm. So it's interesting to try to put all these four accounts together. I mean, there's most a lot of similarities. and um, But I thought, Kyle, if this is all right with you, because we can't go through all four stories uh-huh. in this show, maybe just to go through one of them a little more deeply for the listeners. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. You know, of course, he was called Saul. Mm-hmm. So the first account in the Acts of the Apostles is in chapter 9. So I thought maybe that would be a good uh, passage to read. But rather than read the whole account at once, I I was thinking it might be good to just like split it up into three and talk about each one separately. So I'll start with the first part of this account of Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 9. So I'll read that, and then I'd like to bring out some of the the lessons that are there and, and kind of explain what was going on. Okay. Now Saul, still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he should find any men or women who belonged to the way he might bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. On his journey, as he was nearing Damascus, a light from the sky suddenly flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, sir? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they heard the voice, but could see no one. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was unable to see, and he neither ate nor drank. So before we move on, just to talk about this, I think everybody knows how Saul was a... uh, persecutor of the early Christians. He considered them reprehensible heretics. He was very, very hostile to Christianity. We see that when we read St. Paul's letters, he, he writes about that throughout the Acts of the Apostles. You know, Saul was a Pharisee, okay? He was a very um, strong in his Jewish faith, but, you know, as we just heard in the account I just read, it said, Saul still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. So, yeah, he was a real enemy of Christians. And Luke explains how Saul received authorization from the high priest to basically extradite Jewish disciples of the Lord from the synagogues in Damascus to extradite them to Jerusalem where they would be punished. Mm-hmm. So that was that was his intent. That's what he was doing when when he had his conversion. He was on his way to get these disciples and bring them in chains chains to uh to Jerusalem to be punished. Maybe to be killed like St. Stephen was killed. 
he believed they deserved this punishment. Notice in the reading it says, if he should find any men or women who belonged to the way, Mm -hmm. he might bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. This is what the Christian movement was called, the way. So the followers of the way. Of course, Jesus said that he was the way, Mm -hmm. you know, the truth and the life. That was really the earliest name for Christianity, the way. So what happens is as Saul is on his way to Damascus, there was this sudden appearance of the risen Jesus. A light from the sky flashed around him. And this kind of reminds us of how God, these experiences in the Old Testament of God's presence, like a light from heaven, a light from the sky, you know, these theophanies. We even see a heavenly light around Jesus when he was transfigured on on Mount Tabor. And because of the light and probably being shocked, Saul fell to the ground. And um, by the way, there's no mention here of falling off a horse. We right. see in some art that he fell off a horse, but it, it seems unlikely because we know afterwards the companions led him by hand into Damascus, so there's no mention of a horse. Uh-huh. But this voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Whenever in the Bible God gives an urgent command like to Abraham or Jacob or Moses or Samuel, he always says the name twice. Did you ever notice that? Huh. You know, so here we have the same thing. And then he says, you know, why are you persecuting me? And I'm sure Saul was very confused because he said, you know, who are you, sir? Really, better translation is who are you, Lord? Because the same word is sometimes translated sir, sometimes Lord. It's it, The word is kyrios. So it can have the meaning of, hmm. of um, you know, a divine, the divine Lord, God. And, and what did Jesus respond? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Imagine, I mean, he hated Jesus. You know, he wanted the followers of Jesus to be punished. Even he was there when Stephen was being stoned. And imagine him hearing, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Of course, Saul thought he was dead. Mm-hmm. And he thought he was, you know, cursed by God. He didn't believe he was the Messiah. So here he experiences that he's alive. You know, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. If you remember in his letters, especially his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul will, writes about being an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. Well, this is what he's referring to. In other words, he he said, just like the other apostles, he was an eyewitness. He's referring to this moment of his conversion. And the interesting thing about what Jesus said, you know, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, he was persecuting the church. So basically, Jesus is saying when he's persecuting these Christians, he's actually persecuting Jesus himself. Right. So Jesus is identifying himself with his disciples. Now notice how later 
Paul gives us in Ephesians and in 1 Corinthians especially this whole theology of the church as the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. Where did he get that from? From this, I think. He meditated under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the fact that, that he was persecuting Jesus when he was persecuting the church. So we can see how he came up with the idea of the church as the body of Christ. Jesus then instructs Saul to go into the city, into Damascus, and there he'll be told what to do. Now, there were these other companions of Paul who were there with him, and and actually the apostle says that they, they heard the voice, but they didn't see Jesus, whereas Paul both saw Jesus and heard the voice. Paul saw the risen Lord. The other companions only heard him. Hmm. So then Saul gets up from the ground and discovers he's blind. You know, that that light from heaven had blinded him. So they had to help him into the city. They had to take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus. And his blindness lasted three days, it says. I thought that was significant because we think of the three days from Good Friday to mm-hmm. uh, Easter Sunday. Maybe there's an illusion there that he was in darkness for three days, kind of like the apostles were in darkness between <laughs> the crucifixion and the resurrection. And Paul's an apostle. So even though he wasn't there at the crucifixion, he is having a similar experience that the apostles had right. uh, being in darkness until the light of the resurrection. Surely he realized at this time that he had really been made, made a terrible mistake in not believing in Jesus and persecuting the Christians. He had been so zealous, so self-righteous, but here it changes his heart is captured by the Lord. It says he neither ate nor drank, I think that was a kind of a an interesting response because he had just encountered the Lord. He uh, was going to get baptized. We'll read about in just a minute. So he fasted, basically, mm-hmm. a traditional sign of of repentance. So that's the first nine verses. So let's see what happens next. So this is the second part of the conversion story in. Acts chapter 9. So I'll read verses 10 to 19. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is there praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, that he may regain his sight. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man, what evil things he has done to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to imprison all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, and I will show him what he will have to suffer for my name. 
So Ananias went and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Saul, my brother, the Lord has sent me. Jesus, who appeared to you on the way by which you came, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, things like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. And when he had eaten, he recovered his strength. So we learn about this disciple in Damascus named Ananias, who God chose to bring Saul into the church. Ananias also had this this vision. The Lord appeared to him, called him by name, but he didn't say Ananias, Ananias. He just said Ananias once. He had said Saul, Saul, because, you know, the call of of Saul was uh, for a really great mission. Uh, Ananias just answered, here I am. Remember when in the Old Testament, Isaiah, when God called him, that's what he said, here I am. Mm-hmm. And the Lord uh, directed him with pretty much detail to go to, you know, he named the street he was to go to, Straight Street, uh-huh. to the, and what house to go to, the house of Judas, to seek out this man from Tarsus named Saul. And Jesus told Ananias that he's praying there, that, that Saul was there praying. And also was seeing a vision. He was giving Saul a vision of Ananias coming and laying hands. So basically, Saul's having a vision, and Ananias is having the same vision. Of course, Ananias isn't real thrilled about it because he, he <laughs> knew that Saul was a dangerous, uh, dangerous man who was arresting and persecuting Christians. He replied about. Uh, what Saul was doing to the holy ones in Jerusalem and that he was arresting people, arresting the Christians. But of course the Lord overruled his objections and, and said, go, this man's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, Kings and Israelites. And then, um, interesting also, Jesus concludes his response to Ananias by explicitly telling him that Saul will have to suffer for his name. You know, we read in the reading, I will show him what he will have to suffer for my name. So this persecutor would be persecuted. (laughs) Of course, we know that happened. Just think of all the sufferings. When we read St. Paul's letters, we, we see how he was stoned at Lystra and beaten at Philippi, imprisoned, arrested in Jerusalem, then he was in house arrest in Rome, and eventually beheaded. Uh, Many other sufferings that we can read about in Paul's letters, but um, here we have it being foretold when Jesus tells Ananias that Saul will have to suffer for his name. Anyhow, Ananias obeyed, and he went to the house. He laid hands on Saul. Notice he called him my brother. (laughs) So Ananias is really welcoming him into the Christian community. And he explained to Saul that the Lord had sent him. So he healed. Saul's healed from his blindness. The scales came off his eyes. It's kind of like he was in spiritual 
blindness up until then, you know? So one of the words for baptism is enlightenment, photismos in Greek. So after being blind, he could see. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and baptized. And then Saul ate. He had been fasting for three days. Now he ate and recovered his strength. Final part of this account uh, in Acts chapter 9 is verses 19 to 22. He stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus, and he began at once to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. All who heard him were astonished and said, Is not this the man who in Jerusalem ravaged those who call upon this name? and came here expressly to take them back in chains to the high priests. But Saul grew all the stronger and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that this is the Messiah. That's the end of this account. Interesting how he began pretty quickly his new <laughs> mission to witness to Jesus. He was certainly a zealous man. You know, he stayed there in Damascus and began to preach and proclaim Jesus. He confronted those who were his allies before, the Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. He confronted them in the synagogues and announced to them that Jesus is the Son of God. So there's this radical change. I mean, the people, what were they saying? These, these Jews were saying, isn't the, this the man who in Jerusalem ravaged those who call upon this name of Jesus? They knew he was there to extradite them, to take them in chains to the chief priest. He was there to take the Christians to Jerusalem. So people were astonished. You know, it seemed pretty incredible, this transformation that took place. The, uh, I wonder if they thought it was a trap. Like he was, he was yeah. pretending to have this conversion to, to be able to get access to these Christians. Yeah, I think they, they were suspicious, definitely. Yeah. It's interesting in that verse 22, it said, Saul grew all the stronger and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that this is the Messiah. You know, he grew stronger. You know, he, he confounded them, I think probably giving them some biblical demonstrations, proving that Jesus is the Messiah, whatever. But so he had changed in his own way of interpreting the scriptures because before he was convinced Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because he died this awful death of crucifixion. Was, that was seen as a curse. Hmm. But the thing that changed him is he saw Jesus alive. You know, he saw the risen Jesus. Of course, he believed at that point. A lot of things we can think about this, how it applies to us today. I mean, we obviously all need conversion. I think... It's also the, the times where people, young people especially, are considering a vocation and they think they're not worthy. And I say, well, you know, God could, none of us is worthy. I mean, hmm. how could Saul have been worthy of being an apostle? You know, he wasn't worthy. But God called him and changed him. It was the grace of the Lord. It's, it's God's grace that makes us worthy for whatever tasks he calls us to. So this is probably the most famous and significant conversion 
in the history of Christianity. <laughs> There's other details and other facets of this that you can read Paul's letter to the Galatians or the other two accounts in the Acts of the Apostles of, of uh, the conversion of St. Paul. So obviously we don't have time to, to do that. I could go to another one, but I don't think we have time. But I think just, just that one account has so much in it and um, good food for all of us uh, to think about and how we should never feel like we're without hope. You know, mm -hmm. this was a merciful act of God whose grace brought about this conversion of this violent persecutor into a great apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, would suffer so much like Jesus suffered and in the end give his life for the Lord, for the one whom he had persecuted before. Right. You can also think of Peter, you know, Peter's weakness, Peter, Simon Peter who denied Christ, but who repented with tears and and he was chosen and God chose him. Jesus chose him to be the, the leader of his church. And he too would suffer and die for Christ and be crucified in Rome, just like uh, St. Paul was beheaded there. They both became martyrs in Rome. And of course, these great saints, Peter and Paul, are with the Lord in glory. So that's about it. Yeah. Well, and I think they both shared their story. Uh, recently, we had a program on Redeemer Radio. And I was hearing they were talking about those two stories and how the reason that we know St. Paul's conversion story is because he shared that. And the reason we know that Peter denied Jesus is because he told people. Like, like, And sometimes when we share our struggles, when we share kind of our past, you know, and things that we've overcome that helps other people in their journey to to see that. And and so, yeah, definitely something that we can reflect on and, and see how we're called to conversion and what things we might need to leave behind or stop doing or or get go to confession and get forgiveness for. And yeah. so. And sometimes, you know, when we speak of our own conversion, it might not be nearly as dramatic. Right. <laughs> but it's real nonetheless. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's something that is ongoing. In other words, we all need to be continually converted. That's why we have Lent every year, mm -hmm. uh, because we backslide, and uh, we need to constantly return to the Lord. Yep. All right, well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, or text the Holy Cross College text line. That's 260-436-9598. And... We'll talk about evangelizing in the 21st century. And if we have time, some listener-submitted questions coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And I think one of the things that I've been thinking, kind of based off of last week's episode, and talking about how we're called to love and the motto, your Episcopal motto, and also the, the title of this show, Truth and Charity, that balance of sharing the truth and doing it in a loving way. I think sometimes we might err on the side of being rude while sharing the truth. Sometimes we might err on the side of we're being loving by not telling people the truth. And I think the hard part is to know where 
to find that balance. And maybe it's different from situation to situation, but how do we evangelize in those situations? Like, what is the right thing to do when, whether it be to tell somebody, hey, you, you need to stop doing this, or just to love them and hope that the truth eventually gets passed on somehow? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I think it is individual, but I, 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 would, I would begin with this. We should always, with everyone we meet, be evangelizing by our witness. Mm -hmm. Okay. What I mean by that, our witness to Christ, our kindness, compassion, love, mercy, goodness, that is a sine qua non of evangelization. A what? Sine qua non. I mean, you, you can't okay. do it without that. Okay. Um, you know, you... you <laughs> So I think the, the evangelization by witness, by living the way Christ lived, speaking the way Christ spoke, imitating Jesus in our life, that is the most powerful way to evangelize. It's very true, and it's, it's essential. And it's part of the truth. In other words, when I took the motto, truth and charity, and I mean, that came from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He, he spoke about, let us profess the truth in charity. Hmm. It's good to remember charity is part of the truth. I mean, the truth is God is love. Mm -hmm. The truth is God so loved the world that he sent his only son to redeem us. And the truth is that God is a communion of life and love, the most holy trinity. So... So I do think that in evangelization, that's the fundamental thing, is that we be living our faith in a real way, that we are loving one another or striving to love one another as Christ loves us. But then that doesn't mean that we hide the, the, uh, the message. In other words, or the person of Jesus. There are so many opportunities where we can actually teach or share what we believe, share our faith that Jesus is uh, the Redeemer of the world and that he is the Son of God who became man. You know, when you think about the various articles of the creed, when we meet someone who hasn't heard the good news, uh, doesn't know much about the Christian faith, or even those who've rejected it or walked away. There are opportunities to share the truth, to talk about our faith and why we believe what we believe, and to speak of our own experience of walking with Christ, our own experience of, of discipleship and what it has done to our lives, mm -hmm. how it's affected us and our family life and how we choose to live our life is it comes from our faith. So I think sharing that is a good thing to do. Now you have to pick the right moment and the right situations, you know, with some people it it may not be something you want to talk about right away. Mm -hmm. It might be someone, you know, a coworker that you just are showing kindness and love and and uh, it eventually the person kind of starts maybe opening up mm -hmm. or asking you 
you know, about your Catholic faith, or you could even take the initiative if you think the time is ripe, not in a proselytizing way or, you know, but in a very real charitable way, uh, sharing the truth with them. I think of the way Jesus um, evangelized, especially that passage of the road to Emmaus with two disciples who had were so disheartened and, you know, didn't know, you know, were confused. They had been disciples, but they saw Jesus crucified. They thought everything was the end. Perhaps it just, he wasn't true, whatever. Jesus walked with them mm-hmm. to Emmaus for quite a while. And he started explaining the scriptures to them that, you know, talked about how the Messiah would have to suffer and die. Gradually, their eyes were open. Now, they didn't really recognize him till the breaking of the bread. But, but notice how our Lord gently guided them and explained things to them. And I think that's important for us as well. We shouldn't try to, like, hit them over the head with the Bible, <laughs> you know? Uh, or, you know, say, well, this is wrong, this is wrong. No. Kind of look, get to know the person, and what their life, what, what their experiences in life are, maybe particular questions that they have or struggles that they're experiencing, and kind of share, you know, maybe some teachings that can help them in their struggles. And, and often it's a gradual process. And just entrust it to the Holy Spirit. I do that a lot. Like mm-hmm. I'll say, Holy Spirit, you know, help this person and guide this person. I try to be an instrument I can give you so many examples of this, Kyle. I mean, you know, I think back when I was a priest, before I was a bishop, you know, I would, I would, and even now too, be, to be honest, but where I encounter unbelievers or people who are confused in their faith or who've left the church, like at a wedding or at a, I meet these people at a funeral, mm-hmm. you know, family members or friends of the deceased or members of a wedding party. And, and I try to engage with them. And, you know, and, and first of all, give them a good impression of, of the church by, by being kind and, and uh, friendly. But then there's also opportunities, you know, where uh, I might, you know, start being able to talk to them a little bit, especially if I know something about why they left the church or, or whatever. And I can gently, you know, invite them. You know, I'd often, at wedding rehearsals, I would give a little bit of teaching and catechesis. And at the end, I'd always say, you know, if there's anybody here who wants to go to confession, I'll be back in the confessional after the rehearsal. I remember how many fallen away Catholics came to confession, something during that rehearsal where the Holy Spirit was at work, Mm -hmm. that they were kind of somehow being tugged at in a way, you know, and, uh, so I think those kinds of invitations can really be helpful. Now, I, I say that priests can do that, but but lay people can also have opportunities where just inviting someone to to mass or sharing the a po- your positive experience of freedom after going to confession mm-hmm. and say, you know, I think this this is what it did for me, you know, and and maybe that would help someone who's fallen away to to come back. Well, and the reason they went to confession with you, yes, the Holy Spirit was working, whatever, but they felt comfortable doing that. 
they saw you interacting and your compassion, your understanding that this was going to be an act of mercy, not an act of getting scolded or something. Exactly. And so I think, yes, that's great for our priests, but that's something that we can all do that you can trust me, you know, that first I have to earn that, you know, I have to earn the right to be respected and that you would open up about struggles or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Cause for example, if I was like mean yeah. at the rehearsal or like impatient or, you know, kind of harsh or something, there's no way they're going to want to go. You know, I mean, that's why I always say that witness is, is always primary. You know, that's what attracts. Mm-hmm. All right. There's a, a quote, Dr. David Anders does called to communion. It's a show on Redeemer radio. And we've been talking about this quote. He said around Redeemer radio is kind of an inspiration for us. He said, when it comes to salvation, it's our role to love it's God's role to change. <laughs> and I think sometimes we may get that reversed. And we think our job is to change people and God is love. It's God's job to love, you know, where <laughs> it, it, it's it's not our job to change people. It's not our job to convert right. people. And, and sometimes I think we that's, that's kind of our, our threshold of success is how many people did we convert or how many people are coming to mass. Right, right. No, I like that quote. I had not heard that quote before, you know, and, and sometimes I know there are people who, you know, parents, for example, who maybe their children have stopped practicing the faith mm-hmm. and they're just, you know, devastated by it. It's a suffering for them because they hold their faith so dear. And I'll always say, just keep loving them. Mm-hmm. Just keep loving them and praying for them. We think of St. Monica and her prayers for her son, Augustine. And, you know, it's tough and it's, it's really in God's hands, uh, God's grace and the person's cooperation with that grace, you know? So I think we do have to realize that the Holy Spirit is the principal agent in the work of evangelization. Right. All right. Well, maybe we have time for one question. Someone asked, I always understood that amen at the end of a prayer was not gender referencing. Recently, the prayer at the new session of Congress was concluded with amen and a woman. Can you please explain the use of amen to conclude prayers? <laughs> well, it means <laughs> so be it. That's mm-hmm. what it means. So there's no, the, uh, the writer's correct or the, uh, the uh, listener is correct that there's no reference to gender in, in the word amen. Uh-huh. So when I saw that in the news of <laughs> amen and a women, I, I just thought that is ridiculous. You know, it's so yeah, amen means so be it. And I feel like sometimes we might interpret that as I believe, like if, when we mm-hmm. say the body of Christ and we say amen, we're, we're kind of, is that, is that a, a rough translation or is that off? No, that's, it's true. I mean, so be it means mm-hmm. normally at the end of a prayer, when we say, so be it, we say, amen, so be it. It's, um, you know, we're, 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 we're basically assenting to this request okay. uh, to God. And I think in the case of saying amen after the priest says the body of Christ or the minister says the body of Christ, it has more that connotation of, of I believe. So I think that's, um, that's a correct uh, interpretation. Okay.
All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop. It's another great episode of Truth and Charity. Just a reminder, people can send their questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Yes. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Have a good rest of the day. Download the free Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet, and you'll have access to the entire archive of Truth and Charity episodes. Hear more in-depth conversations from our bishop about the saints, sacraments, prayer, and more. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer or a topic for a future show, you can submit it on the app by selecting Ask Your Questions. Past episodes of all our locally produced programs like Church Life Today, Dr. Doctor, and The Sandwich Generation can be found there too. Share a favorite episode with a friend or share it on social media. Plus, if you're ever out of a listening area or away from your radio, you can live stream our broadcast from the app too. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.